Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the World Craft Club. I'm James, your host for today, and we have a very special episode lined up for you because we have our first guest from the world of academia. Adrian Gramps is joining us today. He is a, has a special interest in Greek and Roman world building, even digging back into their ancient poetry. So it was a fascinating fit for the podcast. We were really excited to get chatting with him, but our emails went in a very different direction than what you might anticipate. So we were really excited to have him on board. Hey, Adrian, how you doing? Good morning. I'm doing good. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So it, the, the time difference is an exciting thing because right now for me, it is five in the morning. This is typically when we do our recordings, but for you over there, it's, it's 10, right? Like this is, this is a good, 10, yeah. this is a mid morning meeting for you, which is, which is nice. But we actually got connected up through um, the ever mysterious John Bronson. And uh, he had put me on to you, and I just thought it was it was fascinating because t- today we're not necessarily going to focus explicitly on your field of interest, even though like obviously there's a ton of overlap when we talk about fictional world building. It's you know it's you, you are unusually honed in on that academically, which is fascinating to me. But uh, we, the topic that we chose is we emailed back and forth was worlds that endure, the kind of worlds that capture your imagination and draw you in to the point where you are you are attached not just to the narrative and the story, not even just to the characters, but you actually want to get lost in that place. And that's kind of where a lot of our, our emails back and forth as we started talking about this and getting a sense of where this episode was going. So um Let's just ask right up. What, what are some worlds that endure for you? What are you? What have you seen in the past that has has drawn you in in that way? Oh well, for me, uh, I, I, there's there's so many, uh, obviously, um, and there's so many that you know I uh, perhaps I'm forgetting about. Uh, but uh, I I did make a little list of, yeah. uh, and I tried to grab from different media, uh, di- different different sources. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, we have to say Middle Earth, yeah. Darium. I mean, we can't omit that. Yeah, um, yeah. And you know, uh, because that's always forefront uh, at the forefront of my mind whenever I'm thinking about fictional worlds, especially when we're talking about fantasy settings. I mean, you just can't forget about Tolkien. So let's he not leaves, leave that aside. Yeah, his figure looms large. Like it's it's difficult to avoid him. But yeah, why it, why would you want to? <laughs> why would you want to? And here's another one. Uh, and I'm curious what you think, James. Uh, an absolute a world that absolutely, completely astounds me is uh, the cartoon Adventure Time. Have you? Is that something that you've watched? <laughs> yes, I have watched Adventure Time extensively, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I you know I hadn't actually written that down there because I, I wrote down a couple of my own, but flipping heck, yeah. No, no, you're you're right on. That is that is madcap. But what draws you into that? Uh, I think that oh, I mean, well, so many things. I mean, you know, it's just it's just a great show and it's just funny. And I just I, I love you know cartoons and animation. And I think that this is a show which just it it breaks all the rules of world building, all the preconceived rules rules of world building in the best way possible. Yeah. Uh, it basically develops the world uh without without restraint and here's uh, uh, you know i've been thinking about about this and the sort of philosophy of world building yeah and i think that you the best worlds are the ones that are 
developed uh, by way of a logic that connects directly to the the essential experience of the story. Well, there's a big there's a big sentence. But essentially, here's what I'm saying: is Adventure Time uh, is a bunch of episodes, right? Each episode is a story about a kid, Finn, who lives in a world where there are no grown-ups. Essentially, yeah, he's the yeah, only. Yeah. He, essentially, he's the only human, really, and there's no authority figures. Yeah, really, there's just creatures of the imagination. So it's basically a, a story about a kid doing fun stuff. And this, and one of the best things about Finn as a character is he has no limits. His world has no limits. Yeah. So there aren't there aren't the kinds of rules limitations that we that we expect have to come into play whenever a story is being told. So yeah, it's just a completely crazy nutso world, and yet somehow the world feels cohesive. It feels like it has substance to it. Mm. Uh, it feels real, even though yeah. it's completely nuts. Yeah. It's not at all logical, but there we are. <laughs> So, yeah, for, for, for the audience who uh, may or may not have familiarity with this, Adventure Time is exactly as Adrian described it. It's just a gonzo show. Like, it's all over the place. And it, it, um, it runs, on, runs on Cartoon Network. And, um, yeah, it, it appears to take place in some sort of post-apocalyptic Earth. Like, but this is yes. only hearkened to. It's never fully explained. No, only in these the li the tiniest of little snippets. Yeah. And the thing is, one of the most interesting things about it is it, later on they do sort of develop the story, and there is a kind of a backstory and a past that does get developed over time. But for most of the show, you're following Finn's adventures, yeah. and the show's called Adventure Time. Yeah. And and Finn's the essence of Finn's character is that he wants to have a fun adventure. Yeah. That, right? that is, and the, yeah, that is and the main purpose. Yeah. It's his, that's his drive, and his drive is just to have fun. And you see these little snippets of, oh, you know, uh, look, there's some, you know, nuclear waste over there, or there's, you know, there's some hints that there was some, some cataclysm. Yeah. But Finn, most of the time, the main character doesn't really care about all that stuff that happened before. Yeah, he's simply not interested so so to, to 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 even add to like the the zaniness of this so we're talking about other characters that are kind of madcap you have one of his uh one of his friends is, is princess bubblegum who is literally made of bubblegum and um is the leader of the candy kingdom um and then what they start off with is like to give you an idea of how this world expands they start with this idea of princess bubblegum and she's this authority figure and her character expands as the series goes on. You start to understand the mantle of leadership that she bears as the leader of the candy people. And yep. her history is actually fairly draconic. Like she has done yep. some like pretty crazy things in order to yep. retain power. And it has always been for the greater good. And for the greater good. Yeah. And she's ostensibly like she's a good character, like a good aligned character maybe neutral i don't know but like she, <laughs> she's 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 an interesting uh she's an interesting one in there but as this when the series begins she is just a love interest for, for finn and he is he is kind of like drawn to her but she always is seems a lot older she's maybe 16 17 whereas he's like 10 11 years old so it's yes. like kind of the crush on a babysitter kind of mentality yeah yeah but Finn, when he starts the show is actually 11 years old the guy that plays finn and the show has grown up with 
the the main yeah. character yeah. The character's actor physically aging so loads of these weird things happen that just develop incredibly even as his best friend is jake who is a talking dog that shapeshifts and right. like so yeah no you're, you're right and these these hints of a post-apocalyptic world add this sort of um they're like i would actually characterize adventure time as like a fairly dark show which is like a, is. a weird thing because it is just all the things we're describing are just so silly like yeah. but it's all in the backdrop of oftentimes um I, I think childhood emotions like sorrow and regret and yeah. um just kind of that that growth in in character and like uh, oftentimes there are relationships that are broken in the show that just never get healed and things like that. Like that just, there's yeah. always kind of an awkwardness to it, which is just so weird for this show. So yeah, you're right. Like the, the world building in that is fascinating because there is none in a way, <laughs> you know, like yeah. to begin with, like, it's just not, it's not constructed the way we would assume, Oh, you build up all of this detail and you have this great thing. Like Lord of the Rings feels very built, but, I'm given to understand that even even Tolkien developed a lot more of it on the fly than we might. Yes. Which is a weird thing. Well, okay. So, right. So, developing on the fly. Hmm. Um, so, uh, one thing. So, the, to make a bridge between these two points, right? Yeah, from yeah. Adventure Time to Tolkien, which yeah. I'm so happy that we are building bridges between these two worlds. Yes. Very um, I love this. I think the, the thing that really, well, one of the many things which makes Adventure Time really work is that the creators, the writers, whoever, understand that the world needs to be built for the main character mm. who is, right? So the, the entire world that is shown us is filtered through the consciousness of this main character who yeah. is, as the main character, he is our guide as the, as the viewers, our guide through the story. Yeah. So we are shown this, this, world that is built it is only brought into our consciousness insofar as it directly affects the the subjective world of this main character yeah right so we're we, there's not sort of a world that is built for its own sake the world starts with what is this character feeling doing what do they want and how does that you know uh how do we experience that character's experience as viewers if you know what i mean yeah I, I, I love that. And that grounds a world very well because um, I, I think the thing we struggle with, what, one of the last conversations I had was with uh, Matthew Selznick. We, we, were, we were discussing the way that the world building actually actually takes place like physically on the page. Because world building technically, I, I think it has really two divergent meanings. One is writing a conlang, drawing a map, having the nuts and bolts ready. And then when you dump characters into it, so this is very much the, um, I think you and I talked about this, the holodeck syndrome that game masters in TTRPG have, where they sense this need to have the entire world constructed. And then when the players come in for the, for the game, they are just in a simulationist sort of world. And then there's the other side of it, which is the uh, presentation of the world in the writing itself and the clues that the reader picks up. And one of the things that I keep coming to is like, I don't believe technically that authors do world building. I think readers do world building. I think audience does world building. You just provide them with the, the outline for them to put their own world into it. 
essentially. Um, so it is, I don't know, that's a kind of, kind of something I keep coming back to is like, like something to be aware of in the attachment of audience with it. But when your main character is walking through the world and they grow hungry, you then have an opportunity to say, my main character is hungry. They need to go eat. And then you get to describe the food in the world and you get to give people that sense of that grounding in there. Because at that point, the existence of food becomes significant. Yeah, exactly. And so then you can describe like, uh, so it's wandering into, um, I don't know, somebody, somebody getting food, uh, Blade Runner, for example, we get to see a little bit of the food presented in the world when the main character becomes hungry and then sits down at a place and he's eating and it's, and it's, and it's this noodle from like a greasy spoon he found as he was, as he was wandering around a big, big hot bowl of noodles. And you kind of get this sense of like, I, I love, I love the kind of fusion in uh, Blade Runner where, where a lot more like East Asian culture has kind of become more yep. present. And so you yep. get like these, these things like even ads and things that they pass. And so, like to me, that makes a lot of sense, and it gives you a clue about the world, but it also doesn't rub it in your face with exposition. It just says, like, you know, he dug into the noodles with his with his with his chopsticks and was, you know, kind of just overturned the bowl into his mouth and, and drank the broth. You know, you get a sense of like what you're what you're dealing with without having to say they eat predominantly an Asian derivative cuisine in this world that happens. You know, it's like you get you get the immersion. Right, because the, the the facts, the the individual facts come in insofar as they are relevant to the story. And I really think you're talking about the separation of, the, you know, separating the sort of creation, the building up of the world from the presentation of the world. And yes. I think it's important that they be at at all moments that they be completely integrated uh, into one another. Yeah, um, yeah, that's good. And here's another thing: the, the, this. Yeah. The, this idea of the you, you mentioned, which I think is a really good way to think about it, mm. the idea that it's not the author or the GM or whoever who does the world building. It is the the reader of the book or the viewer of the TV series or the player of the RPG that does the world building. That's what that's what you were you were saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. the consumer, the audience. Yeah, what is the what is the world's the, the, the act of world building? It's an it's the it is it happens in the act of actually experiencing, actually exploring the world. Yeah. And that resonates very loudly with current stream of theory in, in literary theory, which is mm. essentially that same idea but with the concept of meaning. Yeah. So that say in a literary text, meaning isn't something that the author creates and thinks up and sort of breathes into the text yeah. for us to sort of then find it in there. Meaning is actually created when we're reading the text mm. in, in our imaginative engagement with it. And it's produced anew in every act of reading. So my, my mother only ever quoted one piece of poetry to me. Uh, that I can recall. And it was by Wordsworth, and it was um, the uh, daffodils. Okay. Um, I wandered lonely as what a cloud. Really? Yeah. And my mom would repeat that. And one time I, I picked it up and I actually read it through. Yep. And uh, I just burst into tears. I just, I just started crying. And the meaning in that story to me was personal for a few reasons. One is my mom would recite this to me continually. And two, as... I have had my, my first son um, and I have been, you know, kind of growing past my 30s. 
I have become uh, like going into my thirties. Um, I have become more pensive and I have become more desirous of, of getting time alone to think and just kind of um, breathe. And so the poem resonated with me really strongly because it, it has a lot to do with the thought life of the person that's there. And it, it struck me in that moment, I applied meaning to that poem that um, was, was built up over years of interactions with my mother and uh, my own kind of personal place that I was in. And I, I think I could have read that in my 20s and the meaning would have been... Would have been different. Yes. Yeah. And that's, so, that's a great story. And I, I would say, yeah, that, uh, that that is the rule rather than the exception. Yeah. Uh, that that creation of meaning is all that meaning ever was. And... And, and that's and that's really what we're trying to get out of these worlds because th there are stories I've heard where the world was present but didn't endure in the same way. And we're talking about I love that you bring up Adventure Time because that is a world that stands apart. It is it, in itself, even though the meaning was taken from the character's interaction with it. Um, and you know, it's like. It, it, I'd love to like, you know, meet, meet Finn and Jake, you know, that, that'd be really fun. But I'd also like to wander around that world kind of yeah. almost unobserved. <laughs> just yeah. kind of just, I just want to check it out. I like, I always yeah. want to wander through the background. Well, because Finn is so busy. He's always doing something. He's always doing this or that. Jake as well. He's always mm -hmm. being pulled from one thing to the next, the next, and you're, you, you're pulled away from something which is interesting. And as the viewer, there's so many moments where you're like, Wait, what's what's going on with that thing? And Finn is like, nope, I'm I don't care about that. I'm going over here and I'm I'm doing my quest or whatever. And and you want to be like, oh, what what was that? You know, you want to go back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want you want to tell him to stop and just and just look at it. It's just like there, there's an interesting thing happening. Didn't you see that building behind you? Like yep. that looks like an old apartment complex or something. I bet you could find something like interesting. What happened? Don't you have any curiosity about how? this world came to an end or changed or that's right. where these characters come from and, and weirdly it works because he doesn't care <laughs> yeah no, that, that's phenomenal it sparks and, our interest yeah <laughs> and you know it, it's this is an interesting thing as well because the same thing happens in lord of the rings um as you read it through one of the best things about like i, I loved tolkien's um main character being somebody as humble and in some ways like curious but also just very very earthbound as frodo because like and they're, they're like moments like I, and and some of the things that really stick out to me about um particularly the movies the movies were very well done and um i loved when they were uh first movie they're paddling down the river and they come up to a pair of statues that are very regal in their appearance and they yes. put out a hand as if saying stop yeah and they just float by it and i'm kind of yep. like and they're going through these ruins and i am just like was that a guard tower like why are is what yeah where are you like it's why aren't there people here anymore what happened to these people that's right and like i, I I believe they're going through through an, an old an old segment function of Gondor, aren't they? It's like it, uh, Gondor in years gone by, and it's the, the border obsessed. into it's the border into Gondor, the old border into Gondor. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And but you you read that and you're like, who are those kings? Like, why did they pick those? And like, you want to you want to explore it. And it's those kinds of things that make people 
by the extensive range of Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth encyclopedias and right. stuff. Like, and, you just want to know. And why is it, right? It's that sense of wonder, which is mm. a, a key term that we were discussing in our earlier exchanges. Yeah, yeah. That essential sense of wonder. And I would like to propose something here. Oh, please, yeah. Okay? Um, for your consideration. That that sense of wonder, which is the basis, the absolute foundation of successful world building. Hmm. If there's no wonder, there's no point. That wonder requires the unknown. Yeah. Right? So that example is that you, as in your experience of watching the film, right? Yeah. And we need to keep in our, the forefront of our minds that experience of watching the film. Uh, that you see the characters are moving past something. And there is something in the world that you want to go back to and you want to stay with it and you want to interrogate it and ask questions. Yeah. The reason that you're interested is because you don't know. The character, the, some of the characters don't know. The information is not given to you. If it were laid out to you and it were told, you would no longer be interested in it. Yeah. There would be no wonder. And this is, this is kind of a fascinating thing because we actually have a couple of, a couple of intersecting things. And I think there are some contradictions and tensions in here because one of the, one of the things I'm seeing is that one of the first things that we raised is that your sense of world building is inseparable from the main character. Yes. Right. Like you have to, we, we talked about how Finn is, is, you know, going through that world and there, there are things that he is interested in and he dives into. There's other things that he ignores, but the wonder that is essential to world building is reliant upon the main character's lack of interest in it, which is well, interesting, well, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think you are right uh, in, to bring that up. And I think in order to really crack this, uh, this question, we'd have to go and do a screening of uh, the first film and look at exactly what happens. But I bet you there is some sort of there is some sort of camera movement looking up towards yes. those statues. Yeah. And here's the camera eye is another character, right? So the camera eye suggests. Now here's the thing, and here's here's a point that I wanted to get to anyway, is that again one of the keys to the storytelling of Tolkien is discrepancy of knowledge. And there's actually there's actually a lecture on this that I found on YouTube that I do not have the reference for. Uh, but maybe, maybe you know, we can bring it up later. But yeah, yeah. the discrepancy of knowledge, it's that the hobbits are, like you were saying before, they're close to Earth and they're sort of simple folk. And they're being inducted into this huge new world which has so many unknowns. And there are characters in it who do know everything. Essentially, yeah. Aragorn basically knows everything. You know, Gandalf knows everything. Uh, not everything, everything, but but if enough. you didn't have these enough, yeah, yeah, he knows more than yeah. Um, if you didn't have these main characters who have some kind of who are in awe of this world because it's so huge and unknown to them, the story simply would not work. There would be no interest in it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's that's really good. You make you make a fair point as well because uh, what, one of the things in our in our email conversation back and forth that you'd mentioned is that the world building is in essence inseparable from the medium. Like you can't take yeah. one away from the other. So this actually drives like a lot of the primary reason that I got into this podcast was that um, I used to have this perspective on world building that was very um, 
uh, kind of like, I'll say nerd centric, where like, I like to pick things apart. And I like to see I like to find fault. And uh, I would scoff at these worlds. But then I kept finding that one, the worlds that I held up as being the very best, often had like cohesion issues that I hadn't quite realized until somebody until I read some smarmy post on Reddit. That's right. Also, the worlds that were the silliest worlds that I would have absolutely scoffed at and said that's dumb. Um, Adventure Time would be would be a good example of it. When I though when I was younger, I was absolutely entranced by Adventure Time. So this maybe isn't a good example, but um, I, I certainly wouldn't have considered a serious world building proposition. I just would have been like, oh well, that's silly. But that's as silly. yeah, but as I go as I go further along, the more I just kept finding my my expectations subverted. I kept looking at worlds that. Should be bad, but we're very good. Uh. And worlds that should be good, but we're very bad. And like, um, yeah. and like, uh, J.K. Rowling's my favorite example because like her worlds are are a mess. Like if you if you investigate any part of it, if you scratch even a little bit, and I started to realize that plausibility, that that sense of um, sense of feeling like every that all the tissue is connected was less important as a as a matter of fact, and more important as a matter of theme, yes. and that. Yes. wonder was just essential and i love the way you piece that together yeah you're right the camera the camera's eye is drawn to that and so you know like in essence like as a viewer you're supposed to pay attention to it yeah. and yeah that i suppose is a big difference I, I suppose comic books and graphic novels can do a similar thing uh written stories are a lot harder to do that with because drawing the eye, you have to narrate that or provide some form of exposition. And sometimes I, I guess that can feel contrived. Um, it's all I, about I, framing. It's all yeah. about how you frame it. Because yeah. if you say narrate, and I think that you're implying that, that, that there's something boring in that. Because it is boring to just sort of blankly, you know, flatly relay facts. Oh, well, this is this and this is this. But if you you can narrate things in a way that is that puts the interesting part of it at the forefront right yeah um yeah. uh i i just want to say that i absolutely uh and we did talk a bit, a bit about this before but i absolutely completely resonate with this this uh this sort of nerd centric need to pick apart worlds and yeah. i had the same experience with Tolkien, there's actually an essay somewhere in that Tolkien wrote where he acknowledges that he realizes that the movements of the Black Riders throughout the story don't make sense because he's established at one point that there are that that the black the, the Black Riders can't cross uh, bodies of water, mm. and because he's because he has mapped out this whole world and he knows exactly where everything is and he knows the routes they would have had to take he realizes that there's actually water in the way of i don't i don't remember the specific thing but they basically they couldn't have gotten where they needed to get for the story without crossing water and he does kind of fill in some of the gaps but i my memory is that he ends up saying well yeah that that was inconsistent you know and I remember reading that, you know, when I was much younger, and that actually just seriously bothered me yeah. because it actually made me feel anxious because yeah. I, this was a book that, you know, and a story that I just love so much, love this world so much. And I just, I needed it to be logically consistent. Yeah. 
we yeah. needed it to be. And the fact that it wasn't really upset me. And it took me years to realize that, well, wait a second. Actually, all of the stuff that I love about Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth does not have anything to do with the fact that they're, you know, that the all of the, you know, the through lines and the of the different characters uh, match up logically with how the maps are drawn. Yeah, that's not that's not the important part of it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I think I think you're 100 percent right. Like it's um, so this is this is an interesting thing as well. It's another tension perhaps because um, in one context, like I really really see what you're saying and I agree with it. Like it's there is a certain extent to which you have to uh, take take a page out of Elsa's book from Frozen and just let it go, right? You've got to just like <laughs> ease up on it and just be comfortable with it because Tolkien was imperfect and there were things that he was going to miss. And like he had passions and interests that drove him into making his world with specific focuses in the way it did. I mean, his, his linguistic skills were top notch. That's what he was interested in. His, his mythologies were were inspired. That's what he cared about. There are going to be elements to which like, I mean, it, it's honestly, I, I don't think he necessarily had a deep and abiding affection for map making. You know what I mean? It seems it's because the rest of the world is is unpictured, which actually is, again, the undiscovered elements off to the east, further off the east in Rune and whatnot are like mm. fascinating. It's like, right. yeah, let's, uh, yeah, let's not dive into that. But it's like, you know, <laughs> there's um, he focused on what he was interested in and he made a world that was very well developed where he was interested. And I think sometimes that, works as a good stand-in like uh, in dune uh frank herbert's interest i think was largely in um kind of leadership philosophy and um and also ecology and i think even primarily ecology and so his worlds are very interesting from that standpoint but like when it came to the obvious problem of well when we have computers that might overset, uh, over, overrule some of this stuff. And it might make some of these things difficult because you can't have, you know, uh, you can't talk about the limitations of people if people have, you know, kind of um, outsourced all of their intellect to computers. He just went, uh, yeah. there was a Butlerian jihad. We destroyed all the computers. The end, we have Mentats now. Let's move on. And that is, is absolutely just a crime of convenience in his world making, which is fine because he was, he was just genius. He made an amazing world. But that 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 was that was an easy way out, <laughs> you know what I mean, it to get a, where he wanted to go. It is an easy way out, but I just I think that there's a there's a bigger point here, which is that when we focus on these things like oh the river's in the way, yeah. or what about computers, we are we are missing the point of yeah. of world building, right? What is the purpose of world building? We can't think for a second that the purpose of creating a fictional world is to create something that fits together like a, it's not a ship in a bottle. Yeah. You know, that just, Oh, look how all the parts are, you know, they all fit together and it, it's all, it, it sits there and it just looks perfect, but don't touch it. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, that's not what it is. I mean, it's that you're missing You're if you think that way, you're completely missing the point of why does this world exist in the first place? Yeah. Right. Because if, if it, if, computer technology had made its way into dune then the story would have been not the story that it was it would have been a different story it would have been a story about computers yeah you know and about whatever so about it or something <laughs> it, it would have been Azimov. <laughs> yeah <laughs> sure there you go there you go so 
you know, and okay, go read Asimov if you want, but it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's phenomenal. Like, and, and, and that's, and that's such a good point. It's the thing we keep coming back to in this. Um, but here's a, here, here's an interesting kind of spanner to throw in the works. And this is, um, attention here is that there, um, there's only so far you can strain that, right? Um, in a, in a world building context, there, there appears to be a limit there where if you, and, and this is all in the presentation, I assume, but you also can't have elements of your world feel contrived for the story. So like the world needs to be made for the story in essence and to follow the story and to, and to have your eye directed where the story's going. And that's as the world is revealed as you do that. But by the same token, if you reveal something that makes the world seem a little bit too developed for the story, uh, where it's like, uh, I was recalling it, I was, you know, listening to a book review. And one of the things they said is, and then there was a dragon because the main character needed a dragon. And so he got a dragon and then he flew the dragon over here and, and then the dragon went away and I didn't know where the dragon went. And like, there's a sense that it's like, how, how do we thread that needle of creating a world that is inhabited by characters for the characters, essentially. And you see it from the character's point of view with that sense of wonder and those sort of thematic, thematic coherence, but then avoid the excesses of that idea to the point where it feels like the world is just bending much like the, the world around Neo in the matrix where he sculpts it. It, it does, it does what he wants. I mean, that's part of the story for that. I'm not criticizing that so much. It's just saying like, much like Neo just changes the matrix the way he wants it to be. How do we avoid our worlds feeling like they're just changing for our characters? I think is a good question. I suppose. Um, can you explain what is the problem with feeling like the worlds are bending around us like Neo's world? Well, yeah. Uh, so it, it, it was, it's something feeling uh, contrived or um, too convenient plot armor might be a good example of this it's like the bullets hit all the bad guys but they don't they don't hit my guy uh, which admittedly is not a problem i suppose for most most things we always talk about stormtrooper academy you know like where you know they're, they're never hit their target <laughs> like they're always really right. bad shots but han solo can take a pistol and like effectively do like you know, a shot at 100 yards he'll knock you out um i suppose as i think about it hmm I can't, I can't think of something explicit where it was just convenient. It felt frustrating. I, I know I get this feeling mm. a lot of times in, in Doctor, in Doctor Who, where it just seems like he's a, like the character, the, the world appears to kind of just bend to their desires and, and do things that they want it to do, or it's just convenient for them at the time where they always have a tool for that. That solves that problem. But I, I guess I suppose this is a narrative problem, isn't it? It may not necessarily it is. be a world building. It, it, it's. I think that I think that yeah, I uh, I actually think that there is a very widespread misconception about this whole problem. Hmm. That there is somehow there's the story you want to tell on the one hand, and then there's the rules of logic on the other hand, and don't let your story break the rules of logic. The logic only exists insofar as there is a story. Right. Like I remember, I, you know, I watch these like YouTube reviews or whatever. And I remember somebody discussing Toy Story. I actually don't remember the, uh, the context, but they made some kind of a comment like, Oh, you know, early on in the story, whatever, Andy's mom takes the toy box out of the, 
I don't, what is it? He, she takes the toy box from one room into another room. Yeah. And he's like, well, that only happened so that the story could happen. And I'm yeah. like, well, yeah, there needs to be a story. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you know, I mean, and uh, Neo can do anything, but that's because the matrix is a story about a guy who can do anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a set to me. It really boils down to, it's not about is your world breaking logic. It's about internal consistency of your story, right? Are you telling, are you telling a story about a world where there, where there are no dragons? Well, then there isn't a dragon, but yeah. if you tell a story about a world where there are no dragons and then suddenly there is a dragon, then you're telling a story about a world where first there were no dragons and then suddenly there is a dragon. You see what I mean? Yeah, Harry Potter yeah. is initially a story where there are no magicians and then there are you know, wizards, I guess they're called. Yeah. It's, a, it's a story where there are no, there is no magic and then suddenly there is magic because yeah. it is about the eruption of the magical into the boring everyday world. What, uh, what, what I think happens is in this sort of worldview we have where we look at a story and we want to get some, some sense of where it went wrong, right? We look at it and say like, oh, uh, a really good example might have been like the, the last season of Game of Thrones, um, which, you know, it's, I, I know a lot of people oh. go nuts about it. One of the things they go nuts about is it takes them forever to travel around. A lot of the story takes weeks with like Catelyn going from here to there. But and then like suddenly they teleport, yeah, from mm -hmm. here to there, yeah. And what what I think people do is like, I, I think a lot of fairly, uh, the, the geeky among us, um, and I would include myself in that number, and I'm, I'm sure you would too, uh, look look at the problem in every, every um to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So when we're sitting there and going, I'm building my, my ship in a bottle and, and everybody likes to make those, right? Like, I think there, there is, there's an element yeah. to which we like these perfect little snow globes, these untouched worlds. And like, I make oh, yes. them all the time, hoping to eventually like put a game in them or put a story in them. And I just, I like doing it. I like watching things knock against each other and thinking about implications. We look at that problem. We go, that's a world building problem with Westeros, but it's not. It's a narrative problem because yeah. we've established oh, yeah. some, some rules going forward in, in the story and suddenly uh, the world yes. has become much smaller. And had that been written better, right? That last, that, those last like little, little drabs, we would have had yes. a much, we, we would have been okay yes. with it. We would have yes. been okay with it if it fit the story well. I, uh, listen, I think that you're, to continue the hammer nail analogy, I think that your hammer has hit the nail on the head mm. here because I really think that, yeah, I think that the reason now people may disagree with me, but I personally loved game of Thrones at first and I really couldn't stand it towards the end. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it really fell apart for me and I noticed those things and I've, I heard those things cause you hear it on the internet about like, Oh, well, how did they travel so fast? But again, those are symptoms of the bigger problem that for me, the, the fabric of the story fell apart mm. because all the characters are becoming something other than they are. The entire story becomes, I mean, we won't get into ripping apart Game of Thrones, but yeah, every yeah. scene is a, a conference for, for Christ's sake. You know, there's no action. There's no, you know, the, the story has, the bottom has fallen out in the story. And what that does is that means that those little, sort of breaks in logic they're just it's just one more thing to, to tick you off and it, it it's because the story has fallen apart it exposes those things that feel logically arbitrary 
and inconsistent, but it's because the story itself has lost its soul by that point. Yeah. You see yeah. what I mean? So, but those things are not the main thing. It's like the, the reason that the episode fails is not because, oh, well, you didn't observe the, <sighs> they didn't, they didn't, the do, they didn't use the, yeah, they didn't use the tables to figure out how long they, yeah, they that's not happen. the yeah. problem. But that sense of, yeah, you, you're talking about feeling contrived, right? Every fictional story is in essence contrived, right? Somebody has contrived it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the question is, <laughs> Are you going to build up that sense of trust, that sense of, you, you know, you, are, are your readers, your viewers, your players on board with it? And if you pull out the rug from under them and, you know, and the story takes a turn into stupidity, uh, which I think happened with Game of Thrones, then they're not going to be on board anymore. And they're going to, things like that are going to get to them. Like, oh, why is this so inconsistent? You know, why is this that, yeah. you know? So it is absolutely it's it's a, it's a narrative problem. So yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's, I I think you're right. That's that's a great way to identify that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even as I tried to think about it, it's every one I thought of. I was just like, well, really, it's kind of an issue because they they it really looked very teed up in the narrative, and so it just felt like it was coming out of nowhere. And it's yeah, as long as the the reader's kind of ready for it, you can do a lot. And a lot of that has to do with like a, a more of a thematic cohesion than anything else and like holding that one together. That's fascinating. This has been really good. This is this is a lot of really good insights on here. And I mean it's this this was a good one. I mean, we went from we went from Tolkien to Adventure Time and the connective tissue between them, which should be obvious to everybody, really, but I'm glad that we, we drew <laughs> We drew that in and looking, looking at the way that like world building, we, we tend to consider it as these two separate things where you have the, the, the actual nuts and bolts of it. And then you have the presentation of it. And when yeah. really those two need to be married, like that needs to oh, be yeah. a continual process of experience in the world as a main character. Yeah. How the medium has a huge impact on the way you do world building. It's yeah. one thing to say, well, Frodo has no interest in the statues at the, at the borders of Gondor, but the camera has an interest in it yeah. <laughs> because the camera has an interest in it. We do. Yeah. How about the Weedo workshop who, who built it, you know, built it. Yeah. When you see CGI in a movie, you yeah. know that you're supposed to look at it because it costs a lot of money. As movie viewers, we know the rules and that's one of the rules. <laughs> that's true. And, 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 and the other thing is that typically we assume like it's it's one of the things that always drives me nuts is in movies where they draw your attention to a thing like uh an example would be in inception the uh, totem that they have they uh, uh the little, yes. the, so the totem is the thing that anchors them into the into the real world they they're the only person that knows its weight and so in theory when they when they are holding their their totem item it can be anything for the main character it's a, it's a spinning top and as he holds it he knows him that that that's a real thing to him he can he can ground that he's in a dream he can tell by it and so you know that's going to become important later and it kind of and, and it's the final thing we see in the movie where we ask is he still in a dream or did he yeah. home and like that's you know it's what we draw our attention to it but those statues at the edge of gondor were just nice snapshot going through there pass through and like right. it bears significance in the story because they're they're approaching gondor here's what they do i think so we talked about that sense of that the sense of wonder requires a disparity in knowledge. There's we don't know something requires a disparity in knowledge. Mm -hmm. We don't know something somebody else does. We want to know. But what that does effectively is create an illusion of depth. 
You yeah. can call it illusion or you can call it a sense of depth, right? The world feels deep because we feel that there are depths that we are not plumbing at this moment, yeah. right? There's, so there's we, more we, going on. There's more going on than is on the surface. And you need to, as a, as a world builder, you need to actually engineer that sense, mm. that sense of depth by creating, right, here's a foreground, here's what's going on here, and then here's this other stuff that I'm hinting at, right? Mm. But you, it needs to somehow come into the forefront as something mysterious, as, as an unknown. Yeah. And, and, and that's wild. And even that has to, has to have sort of a, sort of a tenor to it. And that, that, that's where as you're, as you're writing or filming or drawing, illustrating, you are, you are drawing the attention to it in some ways, but without, without diving into it. Like there's a, there's a sense in which you're drawing your audience's eye over it, but not into it. And, um, that's that's fascinating and so and so that was another key note that we hit here is, is the is the 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 generation of wonder is about disparity in knowledge it's about what you don't know more than what you know which is interesting i think a, a, a good one that we um actually dealt with a we recorded this a little while ago but it'll be coming out next week i believe we did an episode called am i god which asked the question do we need to know everything about the worlds we're making and um, ah. we, we kind of discussed a bit of that which is which is this is fascinating stuff but i think covered it you know i i think the last thing that i think we really hit home on was that the issues of world building that we identify as world building problems, the black riders not being able to cross water, but they do the idea that it might feel contrived at some points in Dune for them to not have thinking machines when it's a sci-fi freaking novel um, <laughs> is um, these things would only feel contrived if the narrative were broken to begin with, right? Yeah. But it's not. And as you can accept a lot a lot of bending in a, in a, in, in, in yep. your um, suspension of disbelief. Oh yeah. But if it doesn't fit the narrative, you've got a problem, which is why Andy's mom moving the toy box is not actually an issue in toy story. Unless you just, <laughs> unless you just hate the movies to begin with, in which case yes. it feels contrived and annoying. And that's where that's the itch you want to scratch because you like building ships in a bottle. And so every world is a ship in a bottle to you and you, and it becomes a nail that, you want a hammer, you know, you want to fix it every time. And so, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good, it's a good outlay. And, and, and I think I'll, I'll bring us to a close here unless there's, unless there's one more thing that you think uh, would really put the cherry on this cake. Well, yes, I do have a, I do have a cherry on whatever yes. kind of dessert this is. <laughs> and it might be a disruptive cherry, but it has to do with that notion of suspension of disbelief. Yeah. I actually have no truck. <laughs> with the uh, notion of suspension of disbelief. I mm. think it's actually quite misleading, and here's why. Go for it. So it suggests that in order to immerse ourselves in a fantastical fictional world, mm. we have to take this thing which is our disbelief, which just naturally arises because we're rational, logical creatures, mm -hmm. and we have to put it over here, yeah. suspend it, right? And then we can accept the world. And that, that's what that suggests, I think that the error of that is that it suggests that we have to accept, use our rational and logical faculties in order to accept a fictional fantastical world, in order to believe that it is true. And I think, and lots of other thinkers think, I didn't come up with this thought, that the idea that fictional worlds need to somehow be believed, 
even if it be by virtue of a suspension of disbelief, is the wrong way of thinking about it. Mm. I, in no way do I believe that the story of the Lord of the Rings happened or that it is real, but I still experience it as something real in a different way. You see what I mean? It's real to me in a different way than logical things are real. There's a different, it's a different, you know, in a way it's a different part of my psyche that is entering into those worlds. So <laughs> I'll leave that as a sort of an unresolved contention thought. <laughs> That's amazing. I will definitely have to bring you on to talk about that a little bit more because I, <laughs> I love that. I'd love to break that down with you. For now, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been really enlightening. I thank love you. this. Thank you. Oh, it's been fun. It's been fun. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for that conversation with um, Adrian Gramps. We had a really, really fun time just diving into this stuff. But for now, this has been an episode of the World Craft Club. Thank you for joining us.